everybody. Appreciate you. Good morning, everybody. Talking about communion is a little bit like having a conversation with someone about this year's presidential election. It doesn't take you very long in the conversation before you're bound to say something that will offend somebody on one side of the ticket or the other. And so when I find myself in those kinds of conversations, I tend not to say too much, and I try to change the subject as quickly as possible lest I get embroiled in some political argument. What communion is and what it accomplishes has been the focus of so much discussion throughout the history of the church and so much disagreement. It's caused deep divisions in the church, as you know, for centuries. And so what do we do? Oftentimes, we actually don't talk about it very much, lest we cause the same kinds of divisions among ourselves. And the result of that is that the significance of communion actually recedes from the consciousness of the church. And as a result, the church is impoverished. The interesting thing about um, taking communion is that when you do, you actually participate in a conversation of sorts at the table. From God's point of view, he is making some declarations. Many theologians have declared that communion is a visible word. It is proclaiming something to us at the table. Jesus said some things at the table, as you know. So on the one side, there are some things being proclaimed. But on our side, as we will see, we too are proclaiming something at the table. And so let's talk a little bit about communion today. But even more importantly, let's understand a bit of the conversation that we actually participate when we actually take part in the communion. And I'm going to hem in what I'm going to say basically to 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 because Paul addresses issues regarding the Lord's Supper there in those, even though we could say so much more uh, than we have time for today. And when you go to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us the words of institution. And then right after that, he says we proclaim something. And what is it? Fundamentally, it's we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Notice what he says. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, is it simply we're proclaiming that Jesus died? Is that all that we should be thinking about regarding what we're proclaiming? Let's look again at Jesus' words. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, we could at this point spend all of our time talking about the debates regarding the meaning of Jesus' words here, but let's not. Instead, let's focus on the thing that we can all agree on, and that is that Jesus is presenting himself as the Passover lamb. He's presenting himself as the Passover lamb. With that, it takes us back to the Old Testament. You know the story. After Joseph's death, Israel was enslaved by, by Pharaoh for four centuries, languishing as the, as the forced labor for Egypt. They called out to God, and God eventually responds with Moses and with the ten plagues. 
The tenth of which, as you know, is the death of the firstborn through all of Egypt. Pretty brutal. But the logic of what God is doing is explained to Moses in Exodus 4. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. So when God does what he does in this plague, he's demonstrating his superiority, his sovereignty over Pharaoh. And not just Pharaoh, but over the deities of Egypt. Because they would pray regularly to their deities to preserve and strengthen their firstborn sons. Why? Because it was through their sons that their nation would continue to thrive. To protect The Israelite sons then, God instructs Moses to teach the people to take a young lamb blemish-free and to kill it and to take its blood and to spread it on the doorposts and on the lintel of their doorways and that night to roast the lamb and to eat it as a family unit. And as the destroyer then passed through Egypt, wherever he saw the blood on the doorways, he passed over those homes and those sons. Those firstborn sons were preserved. But don't miss the symbolism. Because of this preservation of the firstborn son in this plague, Pharaoh relented and he gave the whole nation their freedom. So the preservation of the firstborn son foreshadows and declares the deliverance of God's firstborn son and that is the entire nation of Israel. So for the succeeding centuries then, they looked back to that event. And if you've ever been to a Passover Seder meal, you ought to, if you haven't. It's, it's a very moving experience. As you, as you walk back through the history of this event and each item of the meal is connected to something that happened there. And so Jews for centuries looked back, but they didn't just look back. They also declared they were one with them. If you read the literature, they, they see themselves actually as being those who came out of Egypt. So as they ate the meal, they participated in some mysterious way with their forefathers as they were delivered out of Egypt. But they also looked forward because Exodus became the paradigm of their deliverance. They looked forward to the day when finally God would deliver their people in, in the most consummate fashion. And so they also looked forward in the supper to that day when when God would deliver them. And they also then associated the coming of Messiah on Passover night. So when Jesus then says what he says at the supper, he's making a claim to fulfillment. He's making an astounding claim. He's saying that to which the, the generations have been looking forward to is now coming to pass in me. In other words, when we proclaim the Lord's death, we are proclaiming this kind of death. It's not just that Jesus died for me. He's providing the deliverance that the Jews have been waiting for for centuries. And when he describes himself this way, this is my body and this is my blood, he's describing himself as a sacrifice because in a sacrifice, the blood is separated from the body. And as a result, he's transforming his impending execution into a sacrifice. A sacrifice to which all of the Passover lambs were pointing. Now, if you do some reading in the history of what's going on at the time of Jesus, as many as 200,000 lambs were being slaughtered in the temple 
on these weekends, on these days. That's a lot of lambs. And Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of it all. But not even just the Passover lamb. Notice, Paul says, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And as a result, it's not just even the Passover lambs, it's the entire covenantal system that is now coming to fulfillment in Jesus. It's a dramatic claim. So when we declare the Lord's death, it's this kind of death. It's this kind of death. This ultimate deliverance has now been provided and Messiah came on Passover night. He just didn't come the way they expected. He came in a self-giving manner to give his life in place of the lambs. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 5 then describes Jesus explicitly this way. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, we dare not engage in any superficial conversation at this table. We can't come flippantly. We can't come mindlessly. We can't come just out of habit. There's something dramatic that is being declared here. I wonder what it must have been like in the temple when all of these lambs were being slain and that blood was being splashed against the altar again and again and again. 200,000 lambs. And we come to the fulfillment of it all and don't even get moved. Let's pause and recognize the, the conversation that is actually being declared at this table. But that's not all that we are proclaiming. Paul also implies that we're pro- proclaiming our participation in this death. Notice what Jesus says. This is my body, which is for you. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Now, for many reasons that we can't go into today, these words should not be taken literally. It is not as though I'm actually drinking the blood of Jesus or I'm actually eating the body of Jesus. But we can't go into those debates. But I do want to encourage you to realize that something significant is happening here. Something significant is happening here. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the previous chapter. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Really interesting. This is actually where we get our word communion for this, for this event. Because for many translations, they use the word communion to translate koinonia, which is the Greek word underneath here. Koinonia means literally either a sharing in or a participation in something. So what is being stated here by Paul as, is this, as in the Passover when those who ate of the meal participated in the event such that the blessings were provided to that, to that family, to that person, so also when we partake of the supper, we are participating in the death of Jesus. We are participating with our victim. So when we proclaim at the table, we are proclaiming that we are participating. His death has become my death. Therefore, as I've been trying to say today, it is not taking Jesus into my mouth. Rather, it is a taking of us into him. We are being one with Jesus. We are participating with our victim. 
That identification is so close that Paul declares in several places in his writings things like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's not just a symbolic thing here. He understands that because of Jesus' representative death that those who come to faith in Jesus are actually one with him so much that he says, I've been crucified with him and I no longer live. I am dead in Christ. I've been buried with Christ, as he says in Romans 6. Elsewhere, he says the sort of thing he says in Romans. Notice this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As a result, then, communion must be reserved for those who proclaim these things at the table. Because we are saying something. When we're in a a sermon, we're actually quite passive. I've been speaking here for a few minutes now, and some of you are are saying the amen to everything I'm saying. I'm reflecting your beliefs. You, you, You are perceiving the fact that this is in consonance with Scripture. Some of you might be bored. Some of you might not be paying very much attention. You might be thinking about something that you're going to be doing after the service. Some of you actually might be sitting here actually rejecting what I'm saying. No one would know what's going on. I think back to the days when I was deeply in, in doubt and skepticism in my early 20s, and I continued to go to church during, during that time, but I remember sitting there listening to the sermon and scoffing at everything that was being said, and no one knew it, because I was passive in the sermon. But when we come to the table, we're no longer passive. Rather, we are proclaiming something at the table. We're proclaiming the Lord's death, the fulfillment of the deliverance of God for his people that we've been waiting for for centuries as, uh, from a Jewish point of view. But we're also proclaiming that we are participating with our victim. We are declaring Jesus died in my place. And so how can we respond to this conversation? How should we respond Well, first of all, let me just say to to those of you in this room who may be here but who have never received the grace that has been provided for you at the cross, let the plates pass. Let the plates pass. Do not proclaim something that is not yet true of you. God desires honesty, and he gives great warnings regarding the lack of it at the table. Let him pass. But I would also encourage you to hear his invitation. If Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe there are great reasons why uh, it's it's not uh, illogical at all to believe that he rose from the dead. If he rose from the dead, then everything that he said about God, about sin, about the need of humanity, about grace, about how to be reconciled with God, all of that is true, validated by the resurrection. And if that's the case, we all need a Savior. All of us. And so if you're sitting here today and you've never received this grace, ponder what, was co- what, what, what the cost was for you to be reconciled to Him. There could be no better place for you to begin your life with God than here at the table. So here is invitation. Come. For the rest of us, we too must take very careful consideration of what we're proclaiming because in actuality, we're not even just declaring that Jesus is our Savior. We're also declaring that we are at one with the rest of the body. 
Now, this is really interesting. Paul was very, very concerned about the divisions that existed in the church at Corinth. Apparently, they celebrated a common meal every week. They would come together. They would bring food. I'm from Minnesota. We call that a potluck dinner. They would come together, and they would eat together. Unfortunately, however, some people were bringing in with them the kind of stratified divisions that existed in the Greco-Roman meals so that the, the rich and the poor were treated very differently in the meals. And Paul is saying, this isn't good. In fact, if you allow those kinds of divisions to, con- to continue so that when the part of the meal turns to the Lord's Supper, he says you're actually doing something very wrong. Notice what he says here. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And if you allow them to continue, you're eating the supper unworthily. And he has very, very stern warnings about this. Because there is one loaf. Now, follow this carefully. In 1 Corinthians 10, notice what he says. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body... For we all share the one loaf. Now you might take that very, very superficially and say, well, we all ate out of the same bread and and the same loaf and so we're one body. No, remember, Paul said that those who actually are participating in the supper are being identified. We are participating in the body of Christ. I am in Christ now, having come to faith. And if I'm in Christ, that means that you and you and you and you and you that all take part in the same supper are also in the same Christ. We are all identified with him. And if that's the case, we are all one body. Why? Because we've taken of the one loaf that's connected us to Jesus. And for that reason, there must be unity in the body. There must be. The body cannot be at war with itself. So notice Paul's very, very stern warning. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. In this way, then, the supper offers the opportunity for unity every time it is celebrated. So let's examine ourselves. Let's examine ourselves this morning. It's a very important moment in our church. We're between pastors. We're taking stock of our health. We've had conversations for the last year. A lot of things have been going on. But individually, how are you doing? What are the things that you're holding on to that actually are inhibiting your full participation in this body? I would invite you to look at the grace and hear what God is saying from this meal. And allow that grace to loosen. Loosen your hold on those things, to break your heart. But even more specifically, we've gone through a turbulent time here, a roller coaster ride, four years of all kinds of activity, all kinds of things, and some decisions that were made caused great offense. Some things that were said caused great division, and some criticisms that were spoken caused great wounding. That has been our our history here. And you know what? This morning it doesn't really matter who was right and who was wrong in all of those conversations, in all of those situations. What matters today is what remains. What matters today is what is in the heart of each one of us. 
those who've been far more involved in these discussions, what matters is, is there bitterness? Is there resentment? Is there division? Is there unreconciled relationships? That's what matters this morning. The question is, are we going to allow these things to remain? We are fooling ourselves if we think that true unity is simply allowing everything to settle down and then we're just going to move on. True unity only can come from the grace of Jesus. It can only come when the grace of Jesus so grips us that it moves us to relent those things that we have held on to. As a result, then, this is a very important moment for this church. Are we going to allow these things to remain submerged among us into this next chapter of our lives as a church, or are we going to finally allow them to be healed? It's interesting, the Jews, uh, in the wake of Passover, were to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, hearkening again back to the, the haste with which they left Egypt. They didn't even have time to let their bread rise. And so God instructed them in the week following Passover for them to remove every speck of leaven from their home. They removed it all. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, leaven took on this notion of sin and its permeating effects. And so what were they doing? Faced with the great grace of Passover, that grace moved them to repent. That grace moved them to relent and to get rid of that which was defiling them. Is there any leaven among us today? Is there leaven in my heart? Is there leaven in your heart? The very fact that we are not letting it go might indicate that the grace of Jesus is not being perceived, is not being experienced as as profoundly as it needs to be. And so I would encourage you to hear Jesus speaking to you today. He is graciously inviting you to his table. And he is saying there's grace enough for you and there's grace enough for me. There's grace enough to heal us at a very profound level. To move us to have conversations with each other. To move us to have confession ourselves with God. And to become the one body. Hear his invitation today. Come. Amen.